Because when stuff happens, when pain happens, the most, the most natural reaction for any human being is to get rid of the pain. Right. Get rid mm -hmm. of the suffering. That the pain and the suffering really has no place, no time. It shouldn't be there. Hello there, I'm Tanya, and you're listening to episode 18 of Human and Holy, a podcast by The Tanya Project, where we discuss spiritual ideas in human terms. Today's episode is sponsored by Live Watches, watches that stand the test of time. Check out their handcrafted, limited edition Swiss men's watches at livwatches.com. You can let me know later how I did with my first ad. To sponsor an episode or become a supporter on Patreon, please reach out at humanandholy at gmail.com. In today's episode, I interview Esther Zirkind, who is author of the newly released memoir, Where is the Daughter I Raised?, which is a first-person account of her journey through tragedy and faith. Today, Esther speaks about the Hasidic concept of Moach Shalit al-Halev, the mind rules the heart and speaks about the importance of making space for our emotions in order to consciously allow them to be guided by our minds. Hi, I'm Esther Zirkind. I grew up in London, England. My husband and I are living on Schliches in Toronto, Canada. I've just recently come out with a book that I have been writing for about 10 years. It's actually a memoir of four years of my life, which were very interesting and growth propelling. So I wanted to share that four-year experience with everybody once I had the time and space to write. And that's just come out. So I guess I love teaching. I love acting. I write and direct plays all the time. Oh, wow. Nice. That's a yeah. very interesting hobby, very unique. I don't often hear people say, I love acting and I write and direct plays. That's cool. I didn't know that about you. <laughs> I was introduced to you through your book, Where's the Daughter I Raised? And it's the most tremendous account of those four years that you say. I feel like it's more than four years, I'm sure. It's almost like eternal, the, the imprint that it had on you and on your life. And I love the way that you journeyed through different ideas in Hasidus, through your relationship with Hashem, through the circumstances that Hashem gave you. So I'm excited today to explore the concept of Mayach Shalat Ahalev with you. That's sort of like the, our umbrella topic and speaking about emotions, etc. So I'm excited to share your story. And why don't you begin by just explaining the concept as it exists in its source? So would you like me to explain it the way I experience it or just explain it as the concept itself? How nice. much of me do you want? <laughs> Let's start by just saying like how you've always learned it and then explaining how you evolved with it. Okay. So I grew up in London and I attended the Chabad school there called, uh, I think it's called Lubavitch High School for Girls. And there was a, a beautiful array of Hasidic classes that we were given. 
I had an issue with the one thing that we're going to be talking about today, which is my Shalat al-Halev. And my issue was that I am by nature an extremely emotional person. And the idea of mayach shalit, which means that the mind should control the heart, was something I grappled with growing up. And I think it actually affected me on a deeper level than just struggling with it intellectually, because I think that the way the Perakid Beis of Tanya explains mayach shalit al-halev, it asks or demands or explains the Bainaini and how the Bainaini might desire to do something that is against halacha, and then they use their mind to push that desire away, which is beautiful. The concept itself is beautiful, but the way it was sort of trickled down to us as young girls was that emotions are second best at best, and intellectual accomplishments or to the idea of intellectualizing everything that is paramount, and that is the ideal. And compound that with growing up in a culture, England, that is very stiff upper lip. That means that there isn't much room for the emotional part of life, and that we don't ever, we certainly don't show emotions. We don't admit (laughs) that we have emotions, and we don't get emotional. So here I am, a young girl, and just I'm just one big bag of emotions because that's really naturally who I am in my core. And so I grew up thinking that there was something the matter with being that way. And, you know, I remember telling myself, you know, when I would make a chashmah nefesh at night, you know, the essence of chassidus is to control yourself. The essence of and it was very hard to control very, very strong a cauldron of emotions, things would happen and other people sort of seem to be fa- dealing with it fine. And I would be crying or, and, and it would be, a, it would be crying for a good thing. It doesn't have to be crying for a bad thing. Like the tears would go up. I, to this very day, can't tell a story without tearing up. I was actually just asked now to speak about, well, this is before the war just now in Israel, but the Mehran tragedy. And it happened to be that I was asked to speak about it. So, you know, it was really, really hard for me not to break down. So that's just who I am. So how was I going to deal with my Shalat al-Halev, that my mind has to rule the heart? I just didn't feel very good at it. So I actually grew up being ashamed of the extreme intensity of what is, to me, a natural reaction, an emotional reaction. So there was this shame that adhered itself to whatever it is that I was experiencing. So I always felt ashamed of my emotion. And my intensity was something that caused me shame. So then about 28 years ago, I came across this book by Miriam Adahan called Awareness. And she goes through the Enogram. So it goes through nine different personality types, and uh, she writes it in the Jewish form. One night, while I was studying this, the Enogram, and studying her book, particularly a book called Awareness, it dawned on me that there are nine spheres. There are actually nine spheres if you take away Malchus, because Malchus isn't a sphere by itself. It receives the energy from all the other spheres, and it gives over to the next 
level. So if you remove Malthus, there's actually nine spheres. So I thought, oh, isn't that interesting? And then I started to make a connection between each personality type on the Enneagram and how they could parallel to a sphere. So for example, the one that is the fundamental one, the grounded one, the one that gets things done, doesn't allow himself to be affected by any outside influence, very, very grounded. So how does that one correspond to the spheres? And I realized that of all the spheres, his side speaks to that particular number. And then I started to see parallels between each one of the Enneagram number personality types to the spheres. So a five actually corresponds, the person that lives in his mind, the person that experiences everything through intelligence, that's a little bit cut off from the world. Well, that's Chachma. And then the two, which is the giver, corresponds to Chesed. The three, which is the Adormi, 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 corresponds to Gevura. And I suddenly found myself realizing that I, as a four, I actually correspond to the sphere of Tiferes, which actually also made a lot of sense because there's that rich inner imagination, that rich inner life, and that intensity of emotion and that empathy that can cause myself to actually experience what the other person is experiencing so strongly. So that sort of gave me permission to be, hey, that's okay. I can actually be this person. So it was like a rebirth. And then as I continued in this vein, and I spoke to a couple of Rabbanim and my husband in particular, and some of his family members. So I, I actually spoke to my father-in-law about this idea, so he is your quintessential eight, the leader, the strong one, the one that pulls it all off and just somehow, you know, and I realized that he, he corresponds to Netzach and I actually described the eight Netzach to him and he had nothing to say other than a big smile on his face. So I kind of got the check for that. The approval him. from him. The approval, yeah. So how did it develop into this how was I able to synthesize this and be okay again with I realized that in order for me to be shalit, in order for me to control my heart, I have to know my heart. I have to know what's going on in my heart so that it's not just, oh, we take it with our stay yadayim and we shove it away. I can't do that. I'm not capable of doing that. And I'm sure if I'm not capable of doing that, many, many, many people aren't because I'm not anything unique. That was another really great eye-opener. I'm not unique, right? So if I'm experiencing this in this way, then many, many people are as well. And for me, in order to have any control over my heart, I need to process what's going on in my heart. I need to have words. I need to be able to label. I need to know what I'm being triggered by. And that's how I can move forward. And that's how I can rule. That's how I gain control. Nice. I love that. It's beautiful. And I think that it doesn't at all change the definition of I think what it does is, is it gives room for that in-between space of where I am and getting to actually being able to rule the heart. And ruling the heart is this process that we have to allow for. And if we don't, even when you mentioned the elder was saying that you push out a thought with two hands, if you can't identify something, how can you push it out? If you don't know what you're dealing with, right? Exactly. Exactly. So there was this whole 
desire to really know and dig what is going on inside. So I think that what I have learned in this journey is that if I don't consciously go into this process, then it is quite possible that the feeling that I am, A, not aware of, and B, maybe even denying is there, is going to have much more strength. And I don't want that feeling to have strength. It's not that I'm ashamed of it. That ship has passed. Okay, good. I'm happy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So no, it was like, uh, you know, I revere feelings and I revere feelings of others as well. I really do. I think it's what makes the world go round. It's just that we can't allow feelings to dictate ourselves or our for our children or make decisions. They can't, but they have to be given their space. We have to first acknowledge their existence before we can possibly deal with them. Otherwise, they are way stronger than anybody wants to deal with. And then the other thing was, is that you can become crippled by your feelings, which I never wanted to happen to me. The feelings of shyness, the feelings of being embarrassed, the feelings of not wanting to, like this whole public speaking thing. I actually train my students to publicly speak because I teach grade eight who graduate. And I also teach grade six who have a bus mitzvah program at the end of the year. And every one of my students has to give a speech at the end. And I understand public speaking issues, but I really train them in this idea of feel the fear and do it anyway. It's okay to be afraid. Sure, be afraid. I was also afraid. But once we, A, acknowledge the feeling of being afraid, and then B, we, we realize, okay, we can control this, and then we can do it. Even though we're afraid, we can still do it. It gives such a beautiful feeling of, of confidence to be able to go on to the next thing, which, whatever that happens to be in a person's life. But I love doing that with kids. It's interesting that you say that when you don't acknowledge a feeling, it has more control over you. Because I think that the instinctive feeling that a lot of people have is that if I deny this feeling and I just put my head down and I use my mind to control my heart, then I can be victorious. But the truth is, is that if you deny the feeling, then the heart ends up being in control. But if you get to know what's going on inside, you could use the information of what's going on in your heart to be fused with what you objectively know to be true. Mm-hmm. I think that like when, when something happens in a situation, you feel hurt by what someone did to you. And you take the moment to feel the feelings of hurt or disrespect or whatever it was. And then I think only once you're able to experience that feeling, can you then objectively look at what happened and make the decision of how you want to respond to that person. If you want to reach out to them about it, make the decision from a more objective, but also compassionate place. So I think that they have to work together in order to really be a mayach that's whole. Yeah, but there's another aspect that we're missing here. And I, I, ha- I completely agree with you. But the other aspect is the differences between people. So what I found was that instead of getting hurt by different people's behaviors, I was understanding what shairish neshama, what sphera they come from, with the help of the Enogram and the study of Hasidus melded together. And I understood, oh, well, of course, that's what she's going to say and feel. And that's how she's going to behave because that's who she is by nature. And it's not a personal thing at all. And I was able to enrich myself with all different types of people in my life that I'm friends with, that I am not nervous or concerned about how they are 
behaving or thinking or feeling because they are they and they are allowed to be who they are. And it's freeing. It's really freeing when we give people the space to be who they are on an emotional level and on a spiritual level. It's been very freeing for me. You're saying once you're able to permit your own emotional world, then you could accept other people's different emotional worlds from you. And then, okay. I like that. Okay. Tell us a little bit about your book. What is the story there? And then I want to explore this topic through that story that you shared in your book. Sure. So the book actually was born of a midlife crisis. I think that, you know, you're very young, but all women come to that point when their childbearing years are over and it's that they have time. When your children are small, there is no time. There's no time. But when your last child is in school full time and you're home for half of the day, there's this great big question, you know, like nobody needs me at home during these hours. So what do I, how do I fill them? So I decided to start writing. It was just a whim, really. Before I started writing, I was always a speaker. And I get called to speak in various different communities about my story. I decided that if I'm going to start writing, I'm gonna, I might as well write my story, which is what people pay to hear. So I'll, I'll start there. It's a good story. So I did. And it took 10 years from that first writing session to now having it published. What I learned in writer school is that no good sentence is ever written. You you don't just write a good sentence. If it's a good sentence, it's rewritten and rewritten and rewritten. And all the creative rules that I picked up in writer school, and then I was mentored for a year by a very famous writer here in Canada. So I always laugh that the experience of the story took four years to live through. The writing took 10 years to write. And people are reading it in one sitting. (laughs) (laughs) Right, it's a couple hours. A lot of people tell me, I I couldn't put it down. I read it in one sitting or I read it in three sittings or something. I'm like, wow, you know, that's just a lot of years of my life. (laughs) (laughs) But the four years start off with, actually starts off with a pregnancy that went wrong. And I was 25 when that happened. So I had two Barsham, two healthy children, textbook pregnancies, everything la di da. And I was 25 and I became pregnant for the third time and that went wrong, very, very wrong. It ended up with a tumor as a result of that pregnancy. And that tumor I fought on and off for four years until it was actually, my uterus had to be, a third of it had to be cut away. The first time that I had Yana Machla, when I was 26, and then when I was 27, I became pregnant with our third son, and we called him Baruch Nachamental Alshams Alzlangia. Well, that kind of gives it away already. Then I got sick again. Yana Machla, it was decided, never actually left me, and its core was still there. And it was discovered after the baby was about a year old and I had to go back on to treatment and I was back in the hospital. Actually, this was much more aggressive and we did get rid of it or we thought we got rid of the Yanamachla. And then my children got chicken pox and it went through the kids, which is a very normal, mild childhood disease. 
disease. That's how it's written about. Only when Baruch Menachem Mendel got the chicken pox, he was taken from us. He was actually nifter from it. Whew. So that was right before Pesach. And then after Pesach, I had to go for more blood tests because we had just finished getting rid of the second bout of cancer. And after Pesach, when I took the blood test again, it was discovered for the third time that the cancer was still there. And that's when they realized, my doctors realized that chemotherapy is not going to kill it and that I'm going to have to cut away a third of my uterus. And I was 29. So I had been battling this now for four years, from 26, 27, 28, 29. And the question was, would I ever be able to have another child again? And by Chaste Hashem, we were blessed when I was 30 with a beautiful miracle baby boy born two months early. And he was followed by a girl also two months early because the uterus can't when it's been so compromised, it thins in pregnancy, right? So they can't allow it to thin to the point that it would could on rapture because that would be a sakana for both me and the baby. But uh, Baruch Hashem, the uterus got better and better with each pregnancy. So I have, after all of that, I have five miracle babies. Wow. So we have eight children. Wow. And that's quite the story. And in the book, I am very honest extremely, extremely honest, because I understood that if I'm not honest, there's no point. So it's not pretty, but it's true. And I had to do a lot of work on myself. And I shared that with anybody who cares to read the book, can go through that journey with me, because I learned so much along the way, even though I didn't want to learn these lessons, they were forced upon me. But as I say at the end of the book, I do prefer the me that is than the me that was. And if I can help others with their stuff, because everybody has stuff. So if I can help others with their stuff, if I can give them the ability to gain a perspective, then that's worth it. It's worth it. First of all, thank you for sharing. The book is so honest. And I'm thinking about what you've been discussing that in order for you to be honest with us as readers, you have to first be honest with yourself and to be able to really confront the emotions that came up for you throughout this journey. Obviously, you just simplified it in a few minutes of speaking, but a roller coaster of emotions and, and you didn't know how it would turn out. You didn't know where you would end up. You were in that place of uncertainty and what did it look like for you to be confronting it in that moment and at the same time trying to believe that it would be okay, which is where the mind comes in, even when all evidence proves otherwise. It was intense. What can I tell you? I felt like I was always, always fighting, just always fighting. It was so exhausting to be in the battlefield for so long a fighting for my health, fighting for my sanity, fighting for my future with children. Like a lot of times when I speak, so people say to me, how could you have risked getting pregnant when it could turn so bad for you? Again, how could you put yourself into such a sakana? And the answers were very, very clear for me. I was looking at two scenarios. These were the options left for me to be really safe and not get pregnant again 
and not have the joy of bringing a child into the world and raising that child and everything that goes with it. Right? So, so I could, I could have chosen the safe way out or I could choose the way of, of risk and get pregnant and bring down this, this neshama into the world and raise this neshama, the tire, the chuppah, the mice and tithe. So those were my options. And to me, it was worse. The feeling of not having these children was way worse than the danger that I was risking putting myself into. That's why I chose to continue. But it was a fight. I was constantly fighting emotionally and physically. And spiritually, because I needed to rearrange inside me. I needed to rearrange my relationship with Hashem. I didn't need to rearrange Hashem. Hashem is Hashem. I needed to rearrange my ideas of Hashem, my notions of Hashem. I needed to fight with myself to, instead of being bitter, being grateful. And I'm so glad that gratitude one because bitter is horrible <laughs> it's a really bad place been there but thank god it's really not a constant presence and also i have to make a huge mention of my husband he's incredible he's just incredible that he it happened not to me it happened to us everything that i went through he went through with me but because he is so much more grounded than I am and so much more level-headed and calm. He was just a rock the whole way through, a true rock. It doesn't mean he wasn't emotional. He did get very emotional all the time, but he knows parameters much better than I do. And he has what I lack and I have what he lacks. So it's a great team and I'm Really, really grateful for him. When I got to that midlife crisis, it was either be angry that I'm not having more. I also lost my mother when I was 38. So I wanted to have a, a girl. I was desperate to have a girl to name after her. And that didn't happen. So I could be angry and bitter about that. Or, and this is how I realized that I can just switch the perspective and say, hey, look at this. I've got five miracle babies, real miracles. I should be so grateful. I should be like so full of gratitude that every day of my life should be hugely happy. And Baruch Hashem, we may, I may, I was able to make that switch. So that's what I try to do now when stuff happens. I really try because I got used to doing that. That was part of the, the fighting. I had to fight against depression. I had to fight against bitterness. I had to fight against everything that will pull me down. And instead, I had to choose. It was a conscious decisions to go with that which is conducive to life and being grateful to what I have, Baruch Hashem, and being grateful to Hashem for every breath that I take was much more conducive to being alive than any alternative. How can you at once make these conscious choices about how you're going to direct your emotions while still being true to the natural emotions that are bubbling up within you when you confront tragedy, hardship, life circumstances that you can't control? Because I give space for them. I allow my emotions to be there. And I also talk my emotions out or write my emotions out, but I don't dismiss them ever. It's just that 
the space that I give them has to be within a certain parameter because otherwise they'll just overtake. And that's not important for them to overtake because I'm used to fighting because I was fighting for so many years that it's like Tavashani, you know, it, yes, I can feel all those emotions. I, if I hear a piece of sad news, if it's a personal piece of sad news or a communal piece of sad news, so I will go into that space and I will feel whatever it is, whatever it is, but I have to know that I have to come out of that as well. I'm extremely, extremely respectful of A, my own feelings and B, the feelings of other people. Feelings have a very, very strong place in my life, but it doesn't mean that they have free reign. They don't have free reign. Sometimes I, I realize that when I so badly want something so, so strongly, I've realized that that's not a good thing. Then that's not good. Really? Yeah. Like we went to Eretz Israel two summers ago and something changed inside me when we were there because I hadn't been there for 30 years. Right. And I wanted to make Aliyah. I, I was the happy. I just had such an Aliyah like on a soul level, the whole, every minute that I was there, that I just want more and more and more. I became addicted to that feeling of walking through the streets of Yerushalayim. I became addicted to that feeling of, of being in the right place, being in the place where we're supposed to be. And I said to my husband, I want to make Aliyah. And he, of course, we're on Shlichus in Toronto, and this is where we're staying. The compromise was to go for the summers. Last summer, was the, would be the first summer since that summer that I could have gone and COVID happened. This summer, we had tickets. Last summer we had tickets, COVID, cancel tickets. This summer we had tickets. We had tickets in our hands. And my husband just lost his mother and he can't travel and I'm not traveling without him. So we're not going. And I'm so intensely sad about the fact that we're not going now for two summers since that life-changing summer. Well. And I keep saying to myself that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is keeping me away. He's keeping me away. And I don't know why, but he's definitely stoking my desire to be there even more, even more, even more. And there's a reason for it. And so, yeah, I'm not dismissing my huge disappointment in not being able to go. I'm not dismissing that. It's completely there. But I'm tempering it with this idea, this strong idea of Hashkacha Pratis and that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is the one that is conducting everything, all the details of our lives. And if I'm not supposed to go last summer and this summer from circumstances completely out of my control, then I have to figure out what I can do with that and not be crippled by my bitterness about not being able to go. And also, it's also teaching me, like, I feel the darkness of Gaulus so much stronger than I ever did, which is actually a gift. It's like in allowing yourself to feel the disappointment of not being able to go, the disappointment becomes less crippling because it's not like a shadow lurking in the corner, overshadowing everything that's going on in your life. It's like something that you can look at and say, you can articulate, I am so disappointed and I want to be there so badly. And you can, and you can then move forward with your summer, whatever it's going to look like in a way that's more conscious. It's tangible. It becomes ta the feeling, the emotion becomes yeah. tangible and then you can actually manipulate it. Right. Or guide it. I'm a little stuck here because on the one hand, I feel that 
when you can articulate and make room for emotions, then it won't dictate you. But at the same time, sometimes allowing our emotions to guide us is actually a very important and powerful thing. Like allowing our intuition to guide us. Our emotions could be a reflection of what our neshama is feeling. It's not always, I don't think emotions are a negative thing. So what's, 100%. what's, what's that balance? balance? Okay. So there's a balance and there's a sweet spot. Have I always gotten to that point? No, not at all. There are times when I'm too emotional, times when I'm too intellectual, and it's always that struggle. I will actually never know if I hit it until Admeva Esrim. Then I can, I'm going to be able to look back. But as we're going through it, when we're in it, I don't think it's possible to know. And I have to accept that. I have to live and enjoy the confusion and the muddle, muddlement of life. And am I doing the right thing? Are we ever clear? Do we have complete clarity ever? No, I don't think so. I don't know if it's possible. I think that it's possible maybe for people who are less emotional than, my, than I am. Maybe they're more clear. They have more clarity. And I just don't think that that's something that I need to worry about because it's too unknown for me. So do I ignore emotions? Do I, not at all. Do I react? I'm very reactionary. Do I do something based on my emotions? Sure, loads of times. My whole art is emotion, right? The art of writing. I'm coloring, I'm painting a picture using words. I go over and over it to see how I can best bring out the emotion, whatever it is that I'm trying to, to convey. But, you know, to, to get to that sweet spot, I have no idea if I've ever really achieved that. I just have to do. <laughs> yeah. And you know, what you're saying is like getting me thinking a little bit that maybe the process of interacting with our emotions in, in that way of giving them space becomes part of the evidence that we use when we make the decision. Right. So we have, we have everything else and then we have the emotion and it's a piece in the story, but it's not the full story. And then if it's a piece, then we know what we're dealing with and we could make the conscious choice to let it guide us. And we can make the conscious choice to say, okay, this is an emotion that I'm not going to validate exactly. right now. Exactly. This is an emotion that can have its day in the sun, but it should not dictate my, my next move. Right. Right. But then there are some emotions that do dictate the next move and, right. and they should, and rightly so. Right. So again, I don't, know that there's ever the knowledge that we've done the right thing ever in this life. I think that that's something that we'll be privy to at the end. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how right I am. That's how I, I hope so, right? Yeah. <laughs> we definitely hope so. Okay, Esther, at finishing off, I would love for you to share any practical tips that you have for me for someone listening on how to fuse these two ideas that you're speaking about, how you can make space for your emotions in a way that doesn't in any way threaten this concept of but only actually gives it a larger sway in your life. Oh, that's so much to unpack. Any situation anybody finds themselves in, there's going to be triggers from the past that's going to come up. And there's going to be an emotional attachment, good or bad, and all kinds of 
emotions will will come up in any given circumstance. And we know that we have to control and we know we have to govern. That's a better word, govern, not control, and direct ourselves and so on. So here's a piece of advice that I've never taken. (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) yeah, here's a lovely piece of advice that I wish I could do more often. Give yourself time. Give yourself time before making a decision. Because I think that the process of understanding what it is that we're feeling and the process of dissecting what it's triggering needs time. And you don't want to do anything that you're going to regret. So give yourself time. I think it's really important to have good friends. Yadidim Mavinim. I think it's really important to have a mashbia. And a mashbia could be a friend. It's not like it doesn't have to have that title. I just think it's very important to respect yourself and respect your history. And when you've made choices that are counterproductive, know that that you're making the choice, you do have choice. But whatever was meant to be is meant to be anyway. So just don't beat yourself up too much. When stuff happens, just be kind to yourself and be respectful, not just of yourself, but of all the others that are around you as well. If you can be kind and respectful to yourself, it will generally, you'll be kind and respectful to others. I think that's beautiful. I like how you said, give yourself time. Just to, I remember in your book, you write about the grieving process and the time and the intense emotions that you write about very honestly and that you also fully experienced as the combination of pain and love that you were feeling towards your son. And that time was the only thing that allowed you to then move forward into the next headspace that you entered. You say you're not in, you're not feeling bitterness right now. You're not feeling depression right now. And in a way I can't help but think that the reason why you're not in that space anymore is because you gave yourself permission to be in that space when it was exactly. You have to. Exactly. So the first year after Bart Nachamendel passed away, I did not work. I did not take a job. I did a tiny little job actually in twice a week in a different mindset. I needed to really, feeling and thinking became activities that took over any other time. Like that became my job. And Good friends were very important. The community was incredibly important to me. And alone time was very important to me too. And of course, my husband was incredible the whole way through. So if I hadn't allowed myself to feel the feelings that were coming up, they were just coming up, just bubbling up, I dread to think where I'd be today. Really, it's a frightening thought. Some people are never able to move out of that headspace after experiencing that type of tragedy. Yes, I really have to be grateful to Akadosh Baruch for letting me be so honest with myself and giving me that time. Yeah, it's good advice. I like that. You're like, I, I, you don't take that? I think you take your own advice too. Yeah, I feel like it's a, yeah. you're like, I'm going to give advice, but I never take this advice. And then, and then we see how you've been living with this advice for years. It's true. <laughs> it's true. Because when stuff happens, when pain happens, the most... <laughs> 
the most natural reaction for any human being is to get rid of the pain. Right. Get rid mm. of the suffering. That the pain and the suffering really has no place, no time. It shouldn't be there. And then I think that's really wrong because I think that pain, being alive, is a very painful experience. <laughs> Life is going to throw you stuff. It's, it just is. That's because, you know, you can't only have it does it doesn't work like that where it's only good only good only good it happens to you you'd be really entitled and annoying and irksome and boring person i think if people are going to go through stuff they should go through it consciously because there's so much there to learn there's so much to unpack there's so much hashem is trying to tell you be there go through it consciously it, you, you you'll come out so different so much more enriched with such gifts that otherwise, in any other way, you wouldn't have been able to achieve or discover. I think that's the last line of my book. Some things cannot be discovered any other way. Mm. And you can actually be happy. Nice. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. It was beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing. Perhaps Moach Shalit al-Halef is not a forced control of our desires, but more of a gentle guiding of our emotions towards the path of reality and truth. Ignored emotions only fester. Often, when we raise our emotions to the light and get to know the internal workings of our hearts, it becomes a lot easier to guide ourselves in order for the mind to have an impact on the heart there has to be a heart that is self-aware and willing to listen elokai <laughs> zakinina Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, you can find me on Instagram at the Tanya Project or via email at humanandholy at gmail.com. If you enjoyed today's episode and could take a quick second to leave a rating or review, it would be so appreciated and it helps other people find the podcast. And if you don't want to miss a single episode, they come out every other Sunday morning, then hit the subscribe button and you'll get a notification whenever a new episode is live. Thanks again, and I hope you have a wonderful day. <laughs>